Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 352nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Bridget Venus Grimes. Bridget is the president of Wealth Choice, a virtual independent RA that oversees nearly 80 million in assets under management for 68 client families and co-founder of Equita Financial Network, an advisor platform that helps advisors plug in and share resources. What's unique about Bridget, though, is how as a solo advisor, she found herself getting overwhelmed with the pressures of having to manage all the different aspects of her business while also providing great service to clients as she quickly grew to 77 million of AUM in seven years and has decided not to scale her firm by hiring more advisors, but instead to leverage herself personally by delegating more and more of her non-financial planning tasks to virtual outsource contractors so she doesn't have to manage them on a day-to-day basis. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Bridget went about outsourcing compliance, operations, trading, investment research, and even our client scheduling to build a trusted team of virtual professionals so that she can focus more on the financial planning work with clients she enjoys the most. Why Bridget, an advisor friend of hers, decided to work together to vet a long list of trusted outsourced service providers in the hopes of purchasing their services together and negotiate better rates, and then ultimately launch Equity Financial Network to give other advisors a chance to plug into their negotiated outsourced rates as well. And why Bridget decided to focus on a niche of female executives, because she felt she could relate to them the most, having spent a career as a female executive herself, and that focusing on one ideal client type would allow her to streamline her own processes better, as so many of her clients would share the same issues. We just talk about why, after working for an RA as an employee advisor, Bridget became frustrated with how she was compensated and the lack of freedom to serve her niche of female executives the way she saw fit and was inspired to launch her own firm where she could have more control of her client service and her own destiny and her paycheck. How Bridget spent $30,000 to get support in writing a book that focuses on the four common financial planning derailers that women executives face without any expectation she'd ever generate enough book sales to cover that cost because she thought the credibility of being an author itself made it more than worthwhile. And how even though Bridget has long been adamant about not hiring W-2 employees, she has ultimately decided to bring her daughter on as an advisor, because even though she doesn't have any plans to retire or sell the practice anytime soon, she wants to ensure the future of her business by creating a succession plan with another advisor she's confident will maintain her approach to financial planning with clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Bridget shares why she feels that one of the best moves she made for her business and herself was engaging with limitless coaching, because in the same way she delegates business responsibility, she was able to leverage the expertise of a professional who could help elevate her and outline better metrics to guide towards the next level. How Bridget learned the importance of not second-guessing yourself and only working with clients that are really a good fit after one of her biggest clients became difficult to work with and despite compromising her fee against her better judgment to try to retain him, the client still left and cost her a lot of money and time anyway. And why Bridget encourages other advisors looking to start their own practice to invest in themselves by engaging in business coaching so that they can get clear on how they want to shape their business and career before launching, just as Bridget has been intentional about the types of clients she wanted to work with and how she wanted to leverage herself, but not have to manage anyone to live her ideal practice. 
And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Bridget Venus Grimes. Welcome, Bridget Venus Grimes, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate you joining us today and, and the the opportunity to to get to talk about this thing that at least I I've taken to start calling the the highly leveraged solo advisor and just all the fascinating ways that we can build these like really business successful financially very remunerative advisory firm practices without needing to hire up a whole a whole bunch of staff and just take on w2 and salary obligations and employee benefits and management and all all the things that go that go with that path uh and i, I even find it's kind of coming into the language of of what we use these days, I hear a lot of advisors talking about they want to, they wish they could scale more and they want to scale. And I ask them, what, what would they really mean about, what do they really mean by scaling? And it comes something in the effect of, well, I just, I wish I could serve more clients and do a little bit more with the with the resources that I've got. I'm like, well, I don't really think of that as scaling. Like, look, if you want to scale up, like just hire a whole bunch of people and do more stuff for more people. And like, it'll, it'll scale up as it grows. And they're like, well, no, no, no. Then I got to hire people and manage people and salary and and who wants to do that? And so I've started making this distinction. There's a difference between scaling, like scaling a business and adding people and capacity and the management and everything that goes with that, and and simply leveraging yourself and saying, how do I get myself to the point where I'm just doing the work that is the highest, biggest, best impact in the business that drives it forward, that's you know uh, financially very successful for the business, but it doesn't necessarily mean I have to go hire a whole bunch of people or at least a whole bunch of full-time people. And I know you've you've lived like a a particularly sort of extremely successful version of this of building building a contractor team around yourself to be able to get up to almost eighty million dollars under management as a as a pure solo advisor. And so I just I'm I'm excited today to talk about this like journey of how you keep leveraging yourself up to be able to get more out of the practice without necessarily needing to go down the road of hiring more and more and more people. Sure. And, you know, it's been an evolution. I know we talked a little bit about that offline, but, um, you know, I never wanted to, I didn't want complexity. I didn't want to have um, any employees. I just, I didn't want, like you said, I didn't want the whole nine yards, the W-2, the whole, like the, the taxes, the 401k, like I didn't want any of that. And I am not a, my gift is not managing people, but, you know, um, as, as I built this business, you know, more, the more clients you take, the more overwhelming it gets. Right. And then you get to the point where you're like, you know, what, what am I going to do with this? Because I, there's only one of me and I never wanted this to be totally complicated. Um, and then the second you add a W2 employee, your whole world rocks. So, um, but I, I do really believe that this is an amazing industry where you can be a solo, you know, like me and outsource everything. And it allows you to do really, really good work, um, without adding the crazy complexity of a staff. So, so help us understand just the advisory firm as it exists today. Like, can you paint a little bit of a picture of how that business is situated for you at this point? Sure. So, um, this is actually my seventh year anniversary this week, and I have a fee only planning firm, Wealth Choice, and um, 
when I launched this in 2016, I had been an employee at a fee-only RIA, super frustrated about a bunch of things. Um, my client base is women execs, and I really wanted to serve these women the way I thought they were best served. Um, and that took time, and time is money, right? So um, I, I felt that to do the work to help these people, I needed to be able to spend time on budgets and cash flow and career planning and coaching. Um, and you know, where I was as an employee, that wasn't really an option. And I also found out that I was paid significantly less than my male peers, which I was not okay with. So long story short, I launched my own practice really just to serve women, just like me, executive women, the way I thought they were best served and have kind of control over my destiny and my paycheck. So um, I have where I am now, seven years in, I have almost 80 million of assets under management. Like I said, we're fee only. So we do ongoing financial planning and investment management for our clients. And we have a super specific niche. It's women attorney partners, women in tech and women business owners. And we stay true to that niche, which means we refer lots of folks away. Um, and we do, um, we really, we try to be their partner. Um, all of our clients are crazy busy. They're breadwinner women. And so they delegate to us the financial piece and we become, we hold them accountable, right? They're, they're super busy. They're raising kids. They're taking care of aging parents now and they're bringing in the money. Um, and oftentimes they just don't even know where it goes. And, and so if they ever want to have this lifestyle at some point where they're not working, um, we're helping them figure out how to do that. So with my business, um, I, I have about 68 client families I serve. Um, they're national. My business is virtual and it, it always has been. So COVID was actually even better to reinforce with the few clients who thought they needed to see me in person that they didn't really need to see me in person. Um, so our women are all, all over the country. It's 100% referral at this point, um, which is really awesome. And, um, and so... We just, uh, I consider us a super high touch firm. And the only way that I can truly do that is to delegate away a lot of the work. So um, I have, I call my team. So everything in my world is outsourced. It's my um, outsourced uh, uh, compliance team, outsourced trading team. My CIO is outsourced. They created all the models for my portfolios. Um, I have a, a great executive assistant who lives in Washington state. Um, I have an amazing operations team that's based in LA, but they're all over the place. Um, and truly without those folks, there would be no way that I could serve the clients. There's, there's only one of me. Um, but that has made it really awesome. So so I, I'm just trying to think through this this list. So the, there's sort of, I'm envisioning like a like a, a a circle with you in the middle and then all these like spokes coming off of it of the different things that have been mm -hmm. outsourced and delegated out. So I want to make sure I follow these. So there there's uh compliance, there's trading for the execution of, of portfolios. There's I think I heard CIO of like doing the investment research and building the models. Right. There's mm -hmm. an executive assistant and then there's operations team. So that's yeah. like the, the five spokes off the hub as it were. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And then, you know, of course, we're using, um, I use Advison for portfolio management um, uh, performance, and they interface with my trading team. And, um, you know, we use eMoney here for financial planning. I use Income Lab. Um, I use Holista Plan. So, you know, you've got all your different resources out there. 
Um, but I am the only one who's doing the planning. And so, yeah, it's kind of like a quarterback sort of deal where you put together this awesome team that's going to support you in all these ways. Um, and so I'm still running, you know, you're running the business, right? I, I have a bookkeeper. I have, you actually have to show up and have the business part that you manage. But by having this team in place, it allows me to to spend my time on the planning part for my clients. So, so then tell me a little bit more about the, like who's doing what on the outsourcing and can I ask like who are you using in all these various categories and sure. like, how, you, how you picked and found them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so just to l- little backstory, when I launched Wealth Choice, um, I was originally attached to a roll-up and I paid 20 basis points to have access to the custodians. And um, at that time they used Black Diamond and and pretty marginal E&O. And so I, I did that. And they also, they had a compliance piece too, right? So I, I was afraid when I launched the business to do those things. I thought for sure, I'm going to mess this up somehow. I'm going to mess up the compliance. I don't know the space. I just know financial planning. Right. And so I started by, my, my go-to was, okay, I'm going to delegate these things I know absolutely nothing about. And I realized like a year into it, I'm paying a lot of money for very little support. And for support that I didn't really, I didn't want to, I wanted to choose different solutions, um, but that wasn't an option. So um, I actually have a friend who has her own financial planning firm, and we decided that we would, you know, band together and put together this suite of resources that we would share, right? And by sharing it, it's economies of scale, it's cheaper for the two of us. So, um, so collectively the two of us, we went out and we just spent a year doing due diligence on every one of the resources that we have. So, um, it wasn't just me, it was me and this partner and we wound up launching a, a platform that kind of encapsulates all these resources. But, um, it was really, we, we set out to just find everything you could possibly outsource. So we use, we settled on Advison who does portfolio performance for us. Great company. I have no complaints. They're awesome. Um, and are you using them just on the software end or like so, the actual investment management end? I know they, they, they launched like a separate TAMP layer on top of the software. Yeah, true. They have. And we've talked to them about that. But at this point, we use them for CRM and just the portfolio performance part. Okay. Um, we brought in a CIO, so outsourced CIO who does our portfolio management because we didn't want a TAMP, Michael. We wanted something that was much more custom. Um, I just struggle with having to blow a client out of investments if I don't really have to do that. So I wanted a more custom solution and we, we got that in place. That's called East Bay. And okay. um, a couple of guys run East Bay. And so they're our, port- our outsourced CIO team. Um, I, I actually really wanted good E&O. I know that sounds ridiculous, but as a solo, um, I wanted really good insurance. I wanted cyber. I wanted anything that could possibly go wrong to be covered. And that's expensive. So we brought in a company called Box. And Box is really good. Um, and they're in our space. Chad Ramberg runs Box Insurance for RIAs. Okay. Um, really good resource. So they work with us on um, excellent insurance. Um, compliance. We have an outsourced compliance team. It's called FPA, based in Rhode Island. Um, and again, you know, we wanted a partner. We didn't want to just be a number. We wanted to really have people who uh, you can have a conversation with, um, who have the time of day for you. So that you'll notice these tend to be smaller. Okay, Advisen's kind of big, but our solutions tend to be on the smaller side because we actually wanted a partner. Um, we have an operations team. It's an, a virtual operations team for our industry called VPG, like virtual partner group. 
um, and they do, you know, all the custodial paperwork. They, they are, are interfaced with the custodians and our clients. Um, they're terrific. And um, my outsourced executive assistant is through a company called um, Athena. Athena provides really good support to our industry. Um, and she does everything client related. So the trading team is called Advisor Logistics. Um, they are based in San Antonio. Um, and really, they were actually brought in. They were introduced to us by our CIO, eSpay. So Advisor Logistics does all our trading, um, which I really like because if you think about this, a client needs cash raised for whatever. I don't have to do it. I can just send in a ticket and say, hey, could you please nicely raise cash for this client? Um, and they'll look at what the investments are and they'll they'll do that for us. Or if we do tax loss harvesting, they'll say, okay, here's exactly what you're looking at. And I don't have to spend any time on that. And that was the last piece I actually gave up. I struggled with giving up control of the trading. I don't know why. It just, you know, I came to the industry actually 30 something years ago as a trader. Um, and I just, uh, it was the last part that I gave up and it was the best decision I could have made. <laughs> Because you really didn't like doing the trading or because now it's just nice that when it's, a client asks, you just tell them and they make it it's happen. So, totally. It's a total time suck. It really is. For you to stop what you're doing and say, okay, yep, I'm going to pivot over here and I'm going to look at everything you have and I'm going to make the smartest decision on what to sell. Um, it's just really great to have a team who that's all they do. And there's a few people on the team and... Um, you know, if there's a tax consequence, they're going to say, hey, Bridget, here's what you need to look at. I mean, it's super conversational. Well, um, I was going to yeah. ask, how does that work when they don't, I mean, just like they, right, they don't know the client at the end of the day, you, mm -hmm. you, you know, your client. So, you know, trades could have tax consequences. And in, in particular, there may be particular client constraints that are that are specific to a client, and they don't necessarily know the clients. So just how does that work? Or how do you yeah. How involved do you have to stay at the right level that we we don't end out with a a, a trade error or something something done that wasn't supposed yep. to get done. Hence my total stress about de delegating in ways. But yeah. they right because you know that's those are all the, the questions you have and you're like well nobody can do this better than me because I know my people. But yeah. well, and, um, and it's on your ADV, so it, you're, you're still yeah. the first you're still the first in line to get sued if something goes wrong. This is true, and so um, Advisor Logistics actually built out an amazing platform. So when you go in and you have a trade that you're going to send, it's through this platform, and there's a bunch of questions you're answering, and then there's you know, there's text where you're telling them, hey, here's, you know, some important things for you to know. Because a lot of my clients are women in tech, we've got protected stock positions. Um, so they'll, you know, create equivalents in a uh, model around some of the positions that we might be keeping or working on. Um, so it really is communicative, Michael. And it's, um, and it's really great. You know, what we have RMDs for clients or QCDs or whatever you're doing. Um, it's just the way that relationship works with us. Um, they are very communicative and they built out a really good platform and things there is, there's a lot, of, there's over communication, right? I, I don't think that they want any issues. So it is super rare to have a trade, a trader. And can I ask like, what do you pay for this? How do they charge? I mean, is it still TAMP style basis point pricing or is there another, another yep. payment structure to it? So that is a really good question because... Um, all of these resources, right? Every single person I just mentioned is bundled into this package, if you will. And that's this other company that I have with my partner, um, Equita Financial Network. And that okay. is, so So the way I pay for it is it's, it's there's a percent of AUM that you pay and that covers trading and um, the CIO 
that part. And then there's a quarterly fee for all the operation stuff. Um, so that's how it's, that's how we pay. Wait, wait, to break that down again. So there's a percentage sure. of revenue for which parts for trading? Trading and portfolio management. Okay. There, um, so whatever your AUM is, and, and so we custody at Schwab right now, apparently. Um, no more TD, but but whatever your AUM or, is. Formerly TD Ameritrade. Got it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that percent, it covers the, the trading and portfolio management part. And then there's a separate, in addition to that, there's a separate quarterly fee that you pay that covers all of the rest, all the operations stuff. So that's sort of, we separated it out that way. Um, okay. Because it winds and, up, you know, if you have a small firm and you have low AUM, we're not going to hit you with a huge fee. So so can I ask like uh, what what that comes out to or what that comes out to at, at, at your size at, at 80 million under management? Um, like what, what the percentage is on trading or what the what the flat fee is for, for other stuff? Yeah, so it's... It's a little different for my firm because I own the company, but I'm understood. <laughs> and and because my eighty million, the total amount of assets under Equitas like two thirty, and so obviously eighty is a big chunk of that. Right. Um, and so I wind up paying a disproportionate amount. Um, but that's I'm okay with that. So I'm I'm paying a lot more than some of the smaller firms because I'm helping subsidize the company. If okay. That makes any sense? Yep. Um, yep. And and so what is that? With with the sort of implied cross subsidy uh, that's there, just what is that? What does that so, come out to be? Like, how does this price for a firm? Yeah. So if you were not me, if you were just paying to be on the platform, mm-hmm. it's um, twenty basis points is the AUM that covers the portfolio management okay. piece and and the trading, and then it's fifteen hundred dollars a month for everything else. So you pay forty five hundred dollars in advance quarterly for everything else. So okay. if you're doing a financial plan, there's no, you know, you keep 100% of that. It's really, you know, the object is to cover the costs. And right. this is not a moneymaker. This is how do we do good work where other women can do what I'm doing, right? Just build the business, whatever you want it to look like. Because this is, a, you know, what we haven't talked about yet is when you launch this, when you launch your practice, it is stressful. It is expensive. It's lonely. Um, and it's, you know, it's nerve wracking because you have yeah. people's lives that you have to take care of, but you're also trying to figure out, well, how do I cobble together these good resources and pay for it? Right. So, so functionally, you've kind of routed this through Equita to get, you know, a little, a little bit more economies of scale, but then mm-hmm. Equita, I guess, is like, has agreements with East Bay, with Box, with financial right. planners assistance, with VPG to engage the compliance, the CIO, the various services. And so they, you know, they, they get to buy at proverbial wholesale rates and, or, or, or uh, they get to buy at wholesale rates and then advisors kind of pay the retail rate and uh, Equidot can op- operate on the, the difference between the two and pass some of the cost savings through. Yep. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because otherwise any one of these solutions would be too expensive, right? I, I mean, I know even because Wealth Choice has, you know, a decent amount of AUM for me to carve out the money that I would need for just the CIO or just the training team would be a huge chunk. And so, yeah, it's by sharing, you know, the economies of scale, it becomes cheaper for all of us. And that has really helped revenue for my firm. You know, when you think about wealth choice, like just to be able to minimize the costs by sharing these resources, it allows right. me to, to take more home. And so is that, also, kind of the typical profile within within Equita is like other 
other financial advisors who are who want to run highly leveraged solo practices, focusing on the planning, letting go of the investments and ops and the rest, and like that's that's who plugs in well to the platform. So it really depends. It's interesting. So it's 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 whatever you want it to look like. There's one firm on the platform that's growing like crazy, and they have three W two employees. And so her solution is to just add, you know, the woman who's running that firm, she's adding advisors. Those are her employees. They're all planners. And the rest of the business is all completely outsourced, you know, using leveraging the the, the, uh, solutions on Equita. But she's she is building a big ensemble firm. Um, And, you know, a lot of her her revenue is now derived from um, from just subscription retainer fees, right? So that's, okay. you know, which is fine. I mean, that's that's how she yeah, wants to build her business, which is cool. And in my case, um, I'm adding one W-2 employee against my better judgment um, in January of 24, because I'm at this point where I, I kind of, you know, it, I, I needed to make a change like that and I wanted a planner. But um, there are other women on the platform who have no intention of um, having any employees. They are, le- like you said, leveraged solo firms and they love it and that's what they're going to stick with. So so now talk to us about this interesting transition then that you've highlighted. So notwithstanding the like the the run you've had to to almost 80 million as a as a pure solo kind of leveraging yourself with all the all the outsourcing options available, now you're adding a a, a W2. So what's the what's the trigger to say Okay, but now I am adding a W two. So just uh, yeah, the leveraging thing only goes so far before you just still run out of room. You know what? It's a combination. So I, you know, I had I had been told years ago that when you as a solo get to thirty five million of assets under management, you need to start adding people. You needed to start at, and I was, so 35 million came and went and I was like, you know what? I really don't want to add in a planner. I just, I love this work. I want to do it myself. I can handle it. And I just worked more and more and all the time. And, and I, I, you know what? I was really, I was really hesitant to delegate away. I mean, think about this. I was a couple of years into this business before, you know, we did Equita before I did have all those resources and you're doing all these other things. So I just, I did not. I did not want to delegate it. I didn't want to, I wanted to do it all. And so as a result, you have no life. So where I am with the business now, um, I, I really have been at capacity for a couple of years and then I would intentionally take on a new client and then somebody might not be a good fit anymore, but it was really a struggle to take on more clients. And, and I got that, to a point. Yeah. And that number for you is that, I think you were said you were at 60, 68 client families. So some mm-hmm. like 65 to 70 wobbling up and down was the was the threshold for you pretty much yes that was that was the the breaking point if you want to call it that and i just um so i have a daughter she's 26 she's actually in tech in a finance role and we've been talking about this for a few years and i think she is really well suited for our industry she's super empathetic and super smart and she's actually taken all the cfp courses and um so she's going to transition over here and it's I think my goal is to have somebody who's like a clone of me. I, I don't plan to leave the industry. I think we as as solos, um, we have the greatest job. We have the greatest capacity to run a business however you want. We can do this till we can't, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I never want to retire, Michael. I, I But I want to be able to step away on occasion and not feel tremendous guilt. 
um, which is mm. kind of how you feel as a business owner. You feel like you're supposed to be there for everybody all the time. And so, you know, we do that because we do really good work for people, but there's, you know, there's this life you, and at the end of this, we're all dead. So I want to make sure along the way that I can carve out some personal time, which is very hard as and, a business owner. And I guess that's still part of the constraint in a, a highly leveraged outsourcing world. Like they can, mm -hmm. they can do a lot of stuff for you, but you still have to direct them. So the requests still come to you before you can let it go to someone else. They do. And, you know, I'm doing the financial planning and, and of course I'm interfacing with the, you know, the portfolio management team on the investments. So you're still present. It, it's, you still have a lot of work to do. I mean, I come in here every morning at seven in the morning and I've got a list, you know, I have this pad with this list. I'm like, okay, so this is today. So, um, you know, I, I want to be able to keep going. I want to not burn out. And I think that where I am right now is to have somebody come in who, I, you know, who can be a junior planner, who can be another set of eyes, who can, you know, learn the business and be able to step in if I want to step away for a little bit. And by a little bit, I'm talking about like go on vacation for two weeks and not feel like um, anyone is in a bad right. place because I'm not at the office. And and I'm struck. So part of this capacity dynamic, you know, you had said like you had tensions with the prior firm about being able to serve clients sort of the way you wanted and the depth you wanted. So am I inferring right that that basically like you're you're finding the capacity for how you serve your clients puts you at this like 60 to 5 to 70 client cap and the prior firm wanted you to be a a bigger number, but you, you need to, you need to take on more clients. And For sure. Yeah. Yes. When I was an employee of an RIA, you know, their business model, they were publicly held, they became publicly held. And the model was there was, you know, you bring in X amount, I think it was like 15 or 20% year over year growth that they were obligated to, to have. That's really hard to do. And you certainly can't be serving those clients that you're bringing in. If your whole purpose is to bring in clients, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a financial planner. I, my joy is out of planning. Um, you know, it's fun to bring in new clients, new, new, new challenges, right? But, um, yeah. but that was what we were tasked with doing. It was all about money. And my clients are busy women. Some of them need budgets. Some of them need like, an, you know, a real plan around the business part. And there wasn't that kind of time. And so, yeah, I would say for my 68 families, um, you know, these are, these are complicated clients and I try to meet with them several times a year, but I want to be available anytime. You know, I had a client reach out to me about two weeks ago and she said, okay, Bridget, I'm negotiating this new job offer. Here's what it looks like. What do you think? And I want to be able to sit down and spend time on that and talk to her about, Hey, maybe you want to ask more for equity, you know, or may, you know, this is what you're leaving behind you. I want to have those conversations because they're going to make a difference to my clients. And, you know, unfortunately that wasn't, really possible as an employee at this other firm, which is fine, but that's not the kind of work I'm going to do. So really, when I look at my client base, um, I'm kind of, you could even say probably at like 60 clients, I probably should have, you know, started looking for help and I just worked more. So where I am now, I definitely need, um, I definitely need someone who can at least help me with, with some of this planning work. And, and so just for what you said earlier of, not not wanting to manage people and not having the W two obligations. How do you how do you think about it now that you are sort of cr crossing the Rubicon of taking on W two salary commitment? You know what I have to tell you, I am so conflicted. Um, this is I, I really I love 
the business the way I've built it. I don't really want complexity. I'm not very good at managing. You know, it's just, I, I'm just not, I, I'm very, I feel like I'm really hard on myself, but that's because, you know, you're building a business and you want to be successful and you want to do good work. Um, so I, you know, the W2 thing, it throws a wrench in your business. So now I can't do a solo 401k. I actually have a, have a real 401k and that requires, you know, redoing everything and bringing in a TPA and it's expensive and, um, you know, things have to change. And um, because there's an added expense with this, but there will be, I mean, I have to tell you, my plan is this is it, one, one W2 employee. But I also feel like it's kind of bringing my business to the next level. And, you know, when I've introduced my daughter to clients, so she sits in on our client meetings um, and I say, hey, here's a new set of eyes that we're going to have, which I think is going to help, you know, all of our planning. Um, and it's also great for people to know that, you know, this is the future of wealth choice. And mm -hmm. I'm 60 this year. She's 26. You know, there will be continuity if anything should happen to me. You know, we've already got something in place here. And I have had such amazing response from my clients that it's it's really, it, it makes you feel like, okay, this is a really good decision. So, so clients recognize the the continuity benefits. They do. And I think it's helpful to have a woman since, um, you know, our client base is all these women execs. And oftentimes those clients have chosen to work with us because I'm, you know, I have similar challenges as they do as a, as a woman. And I think having that for my, I think having that in my daughter is, um, kind of assures them, okay, it's going to be the same sort of focus, right. And, and somebody who can really relate to their issues. So is, as you went this journey, when you when you left the old firm to launch this, were there clients that were able to come with you in that transition, or did you have to like start over and and reset? So I had to start over from pretty much almost zero. So I had signed um, a contract with them, and you know, basically, you leave and you just walk out the door, and. Um, I had, for some bizarre reason, when I started, when I took that job, I had in my contract, I had come from a wirehouse and I had a very tiny book because I had only been working for a couple of years when I moved to that RIA. And I had in my contract that if I ever left, I could take those clients from that wirehouse. And so they honored that. And, um, there, you know, they weren't very many, but I was able to take a couple people with me. Um, you know, it was like less than 10 million of AUM. But um, it was better than nothing. And then that was it, though, Michael. I was not allowed to take anybody else. I couldn't solicit them. Um, it was a broker protocol firm for what that's worth. But, um, you know, essentially, I walked out the door and I just had to make it work. So uh, how do you make it work? Like, what would <laughs> you do, right? You're coming to this. I've got, I've got many years of experience, some knowledge in my and awareness in my community, but I have to start over. Yeah, it is really, really nerve wracking. So, um, and it's, it's hard because I had uh, two kids in college and a mortgage and my husband said, you know, man, I hope this works. So, um, my father runs a company. He still does. He's 86, um, totally unrelated industry, but he had said, okay, you need a business plan. Um, and you need to figure out how much revenue you're going to generate by when and how many clients you need to bring in, you know, really think it through. And so I did that. I mean, you're still starting from zero and, you know, it's, but somehow you have a plan. And so I had those numbers and I just tried to, um, I just tried to get out there. Now I was allowed to, um, 
to link in with my clients before I departed that firm. And I was allowed to announce where I was. And if clients found you, they could come to you, right? They could come to you if they could find you. So that was pretty neat. And I had clients who found me and that was great. Um, but you really just... So you didn't, you didn't reach out to the, you didn't like private message them on LinkedIn to, no, to you... ask them, but you just like, you know, public announcement on LinkedIn. Hey, I've launched mm-hmm. my new business wealth choice. And if they happen to be connected with me and see it, like that's the LinkedIn algorithm. That's how I was advised to do that by my attorney. And you know, I wasn't allowed to contact them. I, I was not allowed to, but they, if they saw a message and they knew where I was, that was all good. So, yep. So we did that. And some people found me, which was really good. And I just got out there again, the way I had basically built my practice, if you will, as an employee at that RIA was by speaking at companies, by speaking at women's organizations, by writing a lot. Um, I would offer to speak at any women's professional organization in the book. Um, And I wrote a book actually two years in, which super helped credibility um, and also got me um, invited to speak at a lot of other women's business organizations all over the place. Um, So I was in full on business development mode. So, So what was the book? So the book is called Corner Office Choices, and it's um, it's a book I wrote for planners like me who serve women execs, but also for women executives themselves. And it's focused on what I consider the four derailers, the, the four financial issues that women executives have between financial success or not. And um, yeah, so I wrote that book two years into Wealth Choice. So- how does that come together? Just are you are you that writing oriented? Do you have background of how to actually make like a word document into a book? <laughs> so, um, well, I needed a little help. So, I I actually love to write, and I always wrote my blogs and my newsletters, which was you know also part of the marketing for Wealth Choice. Um, I had a pretty a pretty robust marketing campaign, right? And that was all me, by the way, because there was no money in the beginning. So I would send out a newsletter. I had, you know, curated a list of all these women over years um, who I would just reach out to. So I'm sending blogs. I'm I'm sending um, my newsletter. And the deal with the book was I had this vision. I knew I knew the content, but I didn't necessarily know how to organize my thoughts. So I hired a firm called Scribe. Um, they had another okay. name initially, but Scribe, um, you can hire them to help you put the words into the book, right? And, and so it starts with, they give you a person who um, helps you outline your thoughts. And then they give you a copywriter who helps you, um, you know, they tape everything. So they get your voice and they help you. Um, they help write the content in your voice. Uh, it was a great experience. So I did that um, and it took about a, a year to write the book. Um, and it's me writing. It's me writing, sending them things, and they're they're working through it, right, to to make it better. Um, and so that book, when that came out, um, really helped the business. And and so what what did it cost to like have them do this for you and go through the process? Sure, it was thirty thousand dollars, and that was like five years ago. So I don't know what it costs now, but I made this financial, you know. I figured a way to get the money and I made a financial commitment um, and I really felt like it was a great investment in establishing credibility for me and for the firm. So, and that was the angle. Like it wasn't because I want to like make back more than $30,000 on book sales. No. And I'm here to tell you, I have not made $30,000 on book sales. So (laughs) I tend to give the book away. 
um, you know, if I'm speaking for a company, I will, I will buy the book and I will give the book away. Um, because I feel like it's a great tool for these women and it's really good marketing for me. So, um, no, it was an investment in the marketing for the company and I really felt like it helped credibility. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and, and thus like giving it away because it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, like a hardcover, uh, business card. For sure. Yeah. And I would tell everybody, you know, no matter where I've spoken and Microsoft, I mean, you name it, wherever you speak, I would just say, if you have a question, you know, you reach out to me and I will help you. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving financial planning, but I, I'm giving them direction. You know, here's where you can go. Here's somebody you can find who's a planner by you or, you know, here's a way you can get started. And in the book, I include every deliverable that I use for a client, right? Whether it's a spreadsheet for cash flow or um, my one-page plan, anything that these folks could use to help themselves. I just, I gave it all away because I figured, you know, there's plenty of business for everybody, but this is one way where I can actually help these women help themselves. So, so then tell us more about just what you were doing to get clients in and flowing in the, in the early years. It sounds like so there's a lot of trying to find opportunities for speaking, using the book as credibility to get speaking. But mm-hmm. like, what were you speaking about and sure. who were you speaking it, for? Yeah, it was usually about the, the financial challenges that women executives have. That's really it. So the book covers, I, I identified four that I think are really important. And one is, you know, not knowing what your priorities are. I have this, you know, I meet with these women, they have a list a mile long of, these are all the things that are important to me. Um, and really getting your head around, well, how much do those each cost and what's really a priority so we can actually have a game plan because there's, they're too fractured and busy to really spend time to think about these things. And, you know, the next thing is where does the money go that you earn? You make great money, but where is it? So, you know, going through spending with these folks and having them choose where is it more intentional for them to spend the money? Is it more important for you to save for your child's college or to, you know, spend 20 grand at Nordstrom? So, you know, until they knew where the money's going, they couldn't make those choices. So we spend a lot of time with many of these folks on that. And then we went into the, um, the career piece is huge. So um, I work with a number of different business coaches around the country um, so that I can refer clients to them for help. Um, but having a plan around, you know, just like we as, as entrepreneurs have a plan around our business, you know, what is the plan that that woman has around her career? If that is the income generating source she has. Um, so we talk about that and, um, you know, options there. And then the last part is, okay, so you've gone through all this. So what's your plan of action and, and having a written plan where you can take incremental steps. Because if you give these women a list of steps, they just shut down because it's just too much. It's like more work for them. So let's prioritize what has to happen and chunk off like three for the next six months. Let's focus on these things and really help folks be accountable. So that's what I speak about. So to answer your question, when I would go to any of these organizations, I'm sharing this information for them. And invariably, you would have folks want to talk to you about working with you. And so that's really, a, it's been super helpful to build the business. And and so that's kind of the linking is this, it, like, this is what matters to my target clientele. This is what I speak about. This mm-hmm. is what I cover in the book. This is what I do for them in practice. Like just it's, it's, it's all the same core focus that carries through. Yes, that's right. It is really focused on the niche. It's really focused on what are their problems? What are the solutions that I see? Yeah. Um, how do we help them? Yeah, well, and, and 
And it makes sense to me. I mean, there is a level of, yeah, like set your goals, know where your money goes and and have a plan that's like, well, we, a lot of us do that in the financial planning context and mm-hmm. in general, but it, but it strikes me just some of how, how you frame this right relative to someone who's in an executive position, like so much of what you do as an executive at the end of the day is trying to make sure everyone's clear about what the priorities are, allocating resources to align to the priorities, and then setting plans of action forward to actually make the things happen where the resources go where the priorities are. Yeah. And now there's other parts, right? There's nuances to that. So I have one client who runs a very large PR company and we um, we almost sold that company. And I was part of that earlier this year where I met with the suitor and I put together the team of the business um attorneys and everybody, you know, the CPA, everybody running the numbers on this company. So that's, you know, you have these nuances with that niche, right? These business owners and her exit plan is we're going to sell this business. And so to help them with that and, you know, to back into, okay, you need to net this for your financial future. And if this isn't what you're going to net, you can't sell this company. You know, that kind of stuff is really, is, it's still specific to the niche, but then, you know, we have these funky parts that, um, that are, you know, different different parts of my client base will have different kind of specialized needs. So can you talk to us a little bit more then about just what the service model looks like? Like how you how you do what you what you do and the people you do it for? Sure. So um th- last year was actually every year I have a theme with my business. And last year was delegate. This year's client service. Last year was delegate. Um and I say that because I was really at capacity and I'm crazy busy. And I found that my process was not uh, the same for every client. And so I had a new assistant and I said, okay, so we are going to come up with workflows for every single thing we do so that it's actually repeatable because I would, you know, I mean, I have these little spreadsheets and it was, I would always find a reason why there's a one-off with a client, um, which is not helpful. So, um, So the way we work now is when we get a new client on, there's this fabulous new client workflow. Um, And what I do with my clients is every client is required to have a deep dive financial plan and we charge $4,500. And it is, it takes several months. We do, you know, a slew of meetings. Um, I start, you know, from clarity meetings where we're just asking questions to like a deep dive meeting of, okay, here's everything I see, you know, let's, let's really focus on um, what your priorities are to a risk management meeting, to a tax meeting. So we chunk it up into, you know, bite sizes so these folks can, can focus. But um, we start with the financial plan. And then once that plan is basically delivered, and by that, I mean, we've had the risk management meeting, the tax meeting, you know, all these different meetings where we feel like, okay, we totally have clarity around this person, this family, then for all intents and purposes, that client switches to a percent of AUM fee moving forward. Um, And so, you know, and we charge quarterly in advance. Um, And my, everything that I have, every partner, every expense that I have is covered by that percent of AUM. So um, moving forward, that's how clients will pay me. But we are, you know, like I said, we're super high touch. And so we're doing things every quarter. I have like a quarter client focus and, you know, maybe it's estate planning. Maybe it's, you know, I I need you to have this incapacity document filled out because I just went through a thing with another client. So 
we'll have some sort of a value add, if you will, every quarter for a client. In addition to the fact that we're meeting with clients now throughout the year, um, you know, twice a year for planning meetings, just to check in, hey, how's it going? You know, what are things we should be working on? So I want to come back to the ongoing process in a moment, but take me back more to just this like multi-month initial deep dive planning process with with clients. Mm -hmm. So like how many meetings, like just how does this flow? I mean, if I come on board and I say, okay, Bridget, like granted, I don't quite fit the women executive uh, (laughs) uh, target market, but were I to be one, okay, Bridget, this sounds great. Like I want to hire you and become Mm -hmm. your client. So what what actually happens first? Sure. So what happens now, because we changed our process, we have a meeting and we it's called a document gathering meeting. I actually stole this from you from a prior podcast on something that you had like years ago. But cool. we have this. Yep, it was super helpful. We have a meeting where we go over together over Zoom. Here are all the documents I would like to collect and why. Here's how you're going to do it. I walk them through how to upload. And they're tasked with uploading every single thing we need. And then when they finish that, they send so, an email. So hey, just be clear, like you're not you're not gathering the information in the meeting you're preparing them for the documents they're going to need to gather and why and how to get them to you. So that's right. So that's different from what you were doing. But yes, so that's what I've done. I've, I've shifted to, instead of emailing the people a document checklist, we have a meeting, we talk about it together. Here's why I need this stuff. Here's how you're going to do it. And then you're going to, you know, you're going to upload this information. That's, that's the first thing and- we do. And they upload to eMoney Vault or something else? Mm -hmm. Yes, the eMoney Vault, which has really become like my go-to place. So they upload to that. I feel like eMoney is pretty user-friendly, and that's why I'm using Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then when that is all up and and in there, I do analysis of everything that they have given me. I input into eMoney any data, and I start a uh, just a, a worksheet of questions. It's just questions about every single thing these people have shared, whether it's estate planning, insurance, you name it, everything that they've uploaded. And our next meeting is called a clarity meeting where I will ask them questions. So I have clarity around everything they've shared. So there's no analysis. It's just been like a 30,000 foot view of me saying, okay, here's what I see. Why is this like that? Um, And so I will get, that's usually like a 45 minute call and just, you know, cash flow questions, balance sheet, risk management, uh, taxes, everything I've been through. Um, Tell me about, you know, how did you make those investment decisions? So um, go through all that. And then the next, the next meeting is I, I take everything. I now have clarity and I can actually do analysis. And I usually will ask for at least two weeks where I will go through everything. And then I do what we call our initial financial plan. Um, and that is uh, balance sheet, cash flow, investment observations, um, and retirement and career. So those, I, 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 I focus on all the things that they've shared in those buckets. Um, the goal of that meeting, which is a pretty deep dive, is to come out of that. It's about an hour and a half meeting. I do this because I'm not going to send them a 55-page document. And I tell them this is the most intense meeting we're going to have because I want you to understand the background of what I'm going to share with you and why we're going to do what we're going to do over the next few years together, right? Hopefully your life. But this is the deep dive. Um, It's not really death by data because I really try to just share what they will understand or need to know. Um, But do all of this analysis. At the end of that call, the end of that meeting, we have some action items, um, things I need them to think about, 
Um, and I'll give them a couple of weeks to think about these things and we'll have our next meeting, which is my risk management meeting. And the reason I do these separate meetings is it's too much to do it all in one meeting. It's overwhelming. So my risk management meeting, I will have gone through all the insurance, every insurance policy, life insurance, health insurance, whatever, um, and share my observations and any suggestions we see. Um, I'll also go through all their estate docs. If there are none, you know, it's a really good talking point. But um, prenup, um, anything that they have, we'll go through that and just get clarity around that. You know, and obviously, depending on where their state is, there may be estate tax issues that we're going to need to have a plan for. Um, and, you know, hey, is there anything that you have in place for this now? So the estate planning, the insurance pieces, and then taxes. And we use Holista Plan, which is great, but not 100%. So my biggest partner is my client's CPA. So I will have conversations with those folks about, hey, here's what I see you know, what do you think we can do? What are some options for these clients to minimize taxes? Because overwhelmingly, these people have told me that that's a really big goal for them. How do we minimize taxes? Um, and that actually came up more and more, which is why we just brought Holista Plan into our practice last year. So does that does that end the process or are no. there, the meeting process continues? So what no. comes next? Yeah. And then the next one I just call a, a solutions meeting. So, okay, these are all of the different steps we said we're going to work on. Obviously, we're going to prioritize these things. So um, now let's get going. Um, and that's at that meeting, we have a, a deliverable. That's the first time these clients are going to see this, but they're going to see it every single time we meet after that. I, I call it the plan summary. It used to be a one-page plan. It's now like two and a half pages. But um, it's so, it's, so you don't call <laughs> you don't call one page financial plan anymore because it's not actually one page. It's no, a you totally plan summary. You know, I struggled with that because I had this awesome one page plan that I really liked because I was like, oh, it's all on one page. It's super simple. But I needed more. I needed more meat, and uh -huh. you know, for myself too because I like. I, I don't want to forget anything. So it's kind of <clears throat> evolved. It's totally evolved, and now it's it's really As like two and a half pages. Mm -hmm. But I like so what, it. So what's in the plan summary? What what do you what do you cover in your slightly more than one page? Yeah. So, so my plan summary starts with these are your financial intentions. These are the things you said were, you know, your financial purpose super important to you. This is what's driving everything we're doing. So a couple of bullet points with that. Then we have a, a little um a little spreadsheet kind of area where we add current net worth versus net worth last time we met. We talk about like, why is that important? Um, uh, and then it's the numbers, right? So I've got their retirement portfolio value, their investment values, how much they're saving, right? Here's what you're putting into your 401k profit sharing plan, your employer stuff, all the numbers. Um, I do a projection of, okay, so if this is what you were going to do forever and you retired at 65, this is what the portfolio would look like. And let's say we took out four and a half percent. So I start with these numbers um, and then we dig into details. And so I'll have, okay, let's, let's talk about risk management and retirement planning. And each, each area of financial planning has its own, own paragraph and bullet points. And every time we meet, we're going to update this. You know, maybe there's something new. Maybe they just moved or they bought a new car. You know, do we need to review liability coverage or, um, you know, what's going on with life insurance? You know, so whatever like it is. Ongoing action mm -hmm. items that we're, yeah. that we're working on. Yes, some are. And and some are just like, okay, well, here's the story. You said you wanted to save $50,000 every year in your investment portfolio, but you're not. And here's the implications of that. So, um, it, it's really, which hence, you know, two and a half pages, but I, I wanted to have a little bit more detail in this. Um, 
And so, you know, hey, here's what happened to your taxes. You just filed them. This is what I saw. We had a tax loss carry forward and here's what's left and here's why we did that. So, you know, each one of these financial planning sections, I will update when we meet so that they see where we are. And it ends with, okay, here's the action items. And so just a handful of things that are priorities that we're going to focus on. And interestingly enough, Michael, I had listened to some webinar um, from one of our peers, and he had this really slick, awesome one-page, very fancy summary like this. And I thought, you know, my clients will love this. It's concise. It's, you know, gets to the meat of it um, and it looks good. And I did this. I sent it to my top, my biggest clients. And I said, hey, what do you think? This is like a year ago. And they said, we hate this. And it doesn't have the detail that we really like to see in our plan summary. So I tried to make it less. And this is what my people like. Okay. So the fifth meeting, it sounds like, is sort of the wrap up of the Mm -hmm. initial process it culminates in the plan summary, which then becomes the document that you refresh with every meeting on an ongoing basis thereafter. This becomes the right. like touchstone document. That's correct. Let's revisit intentions. Let's look at how net worth is progressing. Let's check mm-hmm. in on investment values. Are we still on track for retirement? What are the open planning items we're Absolutely. working on or like issues we need to talk about? Yeah, that's exactly it. And then we're off and running. So- how long does that whole process take? It just as you're going through essentially five five planning meetings. So it should take, you know, two and a half months. It really depends on the client. It depends on how quick they get the material, how available they are for sure. meetings. But I would say two and a half months. It's it winds up being about a quarter when you think about it, from the time I start work on with a new client to, you know, now we're just transitioned to we've already delivered all this information and now they're, um, you know, the fees is, is, it's, it's like per, they move to that percent of AUM fee structure. It's interesting. It seems like it always takes me about a quarter to do all this financial planning. So um, I would say it's like two and a half to three months. Okay. And, and so fee wise, they, they like, basically they don't go to the AUM fee until they've gotten through mm-hmm. this process. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and is that cause are you literally waiting like, you won't implement, you won't do any investment changes and implement the portfolio until you get to the end of the process? No, we'll do or, it. We'll, you know, okay. we'll do it. I, I, I have, to, you know, this is, this is a long-term relationship with the client. This isn't like, how fast can I charge them? It's really not that. Um, and so, no, oftentimes we've already, you know, my, my team has opened accounts. They've transitioned in money. We've made changes if we need to, um, but I, I won't charge. And I don't prorate. That's just my decision, you know. Okay. We're not going to do that. Okay. Because in the grand scheme of clients I work with for 10, 20, 30 years, like the three-week proration is not really what matters in the grand scheme. I don't think so, right? It's really not about that. Okay. And uh, and so w- what does AUM fee structure look like for you? Are, are you at the, the proverbial 1% on a million or are you higher or are you lower? So I am. Um, so I don't really have what you call a minimum, but um, if, if a client has less than $500,000 of AUM, then they're going to pay me a minimum fee, right? So I, I don't need them to have the 500000 but then they're going to pay me, um, essentially, it's $5,000 a year, um, okay. just charged quarterly. And so for the first um, million and a half of assets under management, we charge 1%. And then over a million and a half, we drop it to 0.75. And then over two and a half million, it's 0.5. 
Um, and I'll tell you, I lowered my fee a couple of years ago. Um, I increased my financial planning fee and I lowered my AUM fee. Um, I just feel like the planning work we got, uh, we're doing is just got deeper um, yep. and takes a lot of time. And um, the AUM, that's not to say that, you know, that's not expensive as well, but I, I just feel like that's a fair price. I'm good with that. You know, I feel totally good with what we charge our clients. So then help me understand what the ongoing client process looks like. So once I get through my five meeting process, I've gotten through solutions, I got my plan summary delivered. How does this now start working on an ongoing basis? Sure. So depending on when we met that client, we're going to trace it out six months for when we have our next planning meeting. Now, when you know when you have a new client, you're talking to them all the time about other things. Right. But on an ongoing basis, I will meet my A clients twice a year at the minimum. And if they're what I call a B client, you know, so and, and this goes back to capacity, right? There's only right. one of you. And initially, I was meeting with every client at least twice a year. And I just, you know, if, if you look at the plan summary that I just talked about, there is a lot of detail in this. This is not a I'm doing this in an hour thing. And that's right. intentional. So I found that I could not do it twice for my my smallest clients. I, it was killing me. So um, I've moved the smaller clients that I've categorized as B. And you know, you're going to ask me, so what is a B client? You know, mm -hmm. that's evolving too. <laughs> but, so a B, but the crux is B clients are, are one meeting a year clients? Yes. And so they're getting okay. this, but you know, they're checking in on other things randomly, which is totally fine. But the A clients are going to meet twice a year and they're going to do that. You know, so, so the plan summary and everything behind it, you know, projections through e-money, all these different, you know, everything else that we're doing for them is twice a year for an A client. Okay. And so, how do you try to draw the threshold between A and B? I know it's hard for all of us to... It's so hard. And, you know, I it's it, it's really, it's you know, it depends. It's like everything. I have some smaller clients that are amazing firm champions. I mean, they send me referrals that are wonderful, that are perfect. Um, and I feel that maybe I should give them some more time. So, you know, they may be small, but, you know, we talk more frequently. Um, it it has to be a cost thing, right? We're running a business. So I really do, you know, as my practice has gotten bigger um, and my clients, my clients are young and they're all accumulators. So they just add more and more money to their right. investments. So it's shifted. And so, um, you know, it's it's about 500, 750, 750,000 really makes you above that is going to be an A client. Um, but you know, it, it shifts, it evolves like everything right. else. Right. And so I guess functionally for you, it sounds like the threshold from B to A is some combination of asset size, you know, north of the 500, 750K range or people who are like active referrers mm -hmm. and driving and driving growth for the business where it still is, a. uh, a good deal for the business to keep investing into the relationship that way. Yes. Okay. So when when you're doing these ongoing meetings, one x one time per year for B clients, twice a year for A clients, what happens in those meetings? It sounds like uh, update the plan summary and bring it in is a big piece of it because you're talking through that. Is there other structure to like how you set up the meetings or run the meetings or what you talk about, or is that sure. simply a uh, 
tell me what's going on in your life and we're going to play them. No, you know, so we use Calendly to schedule our client meetings and they're scattered throughout the year. Um, and we will send somebody, uh, every client will get a draft balance sheet that we pull from eMoney and we say, hey, we want this information sent to us, updated um, balances for everything before we meet because I'm going to run projections and I want a meaningful meeting. So um, we reach out to them for some information up front. And then my agenda for my clients looks pretty much the same all the time. And so they know this. And we're going to start with, we call it look back. So we're going to go back and clarify their and confirm their goals, right? And I break it out into personal, uh, professional, and financial because all my people are working. So, you know, anything we need to know um, around those three things, anything that we need to plan for, we go over tasks. Hey, these are outstanding tasks. You know, how are we doing? Um, annually, I go over performance, not more than once a year. Um, and then we go into some numbers. Okay, where are you right now? We go over the balance sheet. Hey, what's going on there? We go over that plan summary in great detail. Um, and then if I have run other reports for the client, so maybe they're in retirement, so we'll run an income lab report. I use income lab for my clients who are either in retirement or close to retirement. And it's essentially... Um, retirement planning, uh, income planning um, around guardrails. So if you're familiar with guardrails, um, that's kind of the premise behind what they're doing, but it's dynamic planning. And I really like it because the challenge as a planner is you don't want people to run out of money, but you don't want them to leave everything on the table. And so I feel that um, Income Lab will allow us to say, you put in there all of the income sources a client has. So maybe it's pension, social security, portfolio. Um, and the age of a client, and it will run through history and say, okay, based on historical performance of the market and the way these folks are invested, um, we believe, you know, time horizon, we believe they can take X out of this portfolio every year. And so it may mean that I can take, you know, let's say I can take 6% out before this client's going to be taking Social Security. Um, Whatever it is, it allows you to be, you know, to, to be more nimble. And if the market appreciates and it will show you, hey, this, you know, historically, this is what we've seen, then you can give that client a raise, an income raise. And, you know, conversely, if, it, if the market tanks and is there for a specific period of time, you may have to say to that client, hey, we're going to need to cut spending. But it's a much more dynamic way of handling retirement income. And I love that. And so... Um, so I incorporated that about a year and a half ago and my clients really, they really like it. I think it's because, you know, they feel like, hey, we can be a little bit, we can reward ourselves if the market's up, right? Um, and they also know that we're going to have to make changes if it comes in. And I think as a planner, we become way more valuable for clients because this is something that they need us to tell them. This is not something that they are capable of doing without us. So... So I'll make sure I understand this agenda flow. So we do the look back, personal, professional, and financial mm -hmm. uh, tasks, like what's open, what are we working on, performance once a year, like let's check in on how, how the portfolio is doing, uh, a broader look at numbers. like right, Where you are now. Right, where you are now on the balance sheet, uh, a review of the plan summary, because mm -hmm. you've got some additional financial details there, and then kind of digging into the, whatever like the special reports are for their circumstances, income lab, if they're retired, like an education projection, if they're still have kids that are college age, whatever, whatever specific to their circumstances. Right. And then we end with what we call look forward, which is, okay, so what are we doing next, right? Are there new goals um, that we've you know identified and what are the steps we need to take around those? Um, are there new tasks, um, you know, and saving and spending? So 
Um, and then we end with, okay, so here's what we just talked about and um, any questions. And I always follow up. So that's my agenda. And we go through that with every client. And, you know, we start with, okay, if this is, is there anything you want to add to this? Um, is there anything I've missed? We send a survey out, Michael, to our clients in, in, in advance of this. And we ask a bunch of questions like, hey, you know, what's really important for you to cover? Um, so we know each person's, you know, if there's anything outside of this, but we want to make sure that we're using this time the way they, they want. So, so I'm intrigued by this. So what else is in your like pre-meeting survey outreach? What, what else are you asking them? Um, well, we're asking them, Hey, are you reading any of the stuff we're writing? Because if you're not, I want to know. Um, so we're on some social media. We send out our newsletter. Um, so we want to know, you know, are you following us? Is this valuable or not? Um, we want to know what are the most important things that you want to cover from a financial planning perspective this year, right? Um, you know, and then we'll give them choices. Is it taxes? You know, is it insurance? Um, try to, to figure out where those folks are and what they what the value is that they see us providing. Um you know, anything major that's coming up, anything that they're really concerned about, um, just just a few basic questions and, you know, that may not come up. And, and it's interesting yeah. because when we sent the survey out, we just started doing this last year. When we sent it out last year, we could not believe how many clients said that they wanted tax advice. And now I know the whole thing, you know, like we're not giving tax advice, but they wanted us to be able to provide planning observations and suggestions to minimize taxes. And it really was why we decided to focus more on that. They, they just said they want to know that we're really, really working on that. So, so I guess I'm trying to say like, is this a like once a year annual survey mm -hmm. to clients, like a annual survey feedback thing? Or is this a like every meeting in advance of the meeting, we send you this series of questions. So every meeting in advance of the meeting, my assistant will send that survey out with a Calendly link. And we we actually book the client. We don't let them choose when they're going to meet. So we book the client. We send them that. Hopefully they fill it out. Some people do, some don't. Um, and then we send them the balance sheet and we ask for updated information. Uh, wait, I, help me understand on, on booking them. So you... Just, I'm envisioning you've got some pretty busy, hard to schedule clients. So you you don't give them uh, choices. You just tell them like, here's your slot. Your executives figure out how to manage your calendar. Seriously, we do that, and and I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. I know, and I, I want to tell you want to tell you how it works because for years we would send them a link and they would not book. And you're chasing people down. And I have a friend, runs a, plan a planning firm. She said, Bridget, no kidding. We just booked them. We booked them and they showed up. And I said, okay, so I don't know how that works. So last year we started and I know all my people are really busy. It's, it, we book them. Like we just say, here's your date. And we confirm it a million times and they show up. And it is so awesome, Michael. And you don't even ask. You don't even ask. No. I I got to presume once in a blue moon, someone just says like, oh, I really can't do that. But They do. They do. And for them, there's a link on there. There's a Calendly link okay. and they can reschedule and then they'll do it. But I kid you not, it works. <clears throat> well, I guess it, it, again, just it makes sense to me in the context of your clientele, like folks that are executives, just their calendars are filled with meetings and the meetings are always fluid and being moved around based on whatever's going on in priority. So, you know, you send them the booking meeting and that's apparently not negotiable because you just send them the booking meeting. So they tell an executive assistant like, oh, uh, Bridget took that slot, you know, a week from Tuesday at 4 p.m. Um, you got to reschedule the other meeting. 
And you know what? They actually like it. I know it sounds crazy, uh, but it's, you know what? It is the greatest thing. It has made our life so awesome. Yeah. So, so you send them a like, you know, your next meeting's coming up. Here is your time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) P.S. Please take this survey (laughs) to give us some feedback for the upcoming meeting. And please look over this balance sheet and let us know if anything else needs to be updated. Exactly right. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. So we, you know, the way we do our meetings, um, I've tried to create some boundaries. So every other week I block and have no client meetings. And those are the weeks I do client meeting prep or, you know, other stuff for your business. So I meet with clients every other week on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, And then I, you know, block out December, block out July, and you're doing other things in those months. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's worked really well. Interesting way. I want to make sure I understand that. So generally you alternate weeks. Mm-hmm. There's like meeting weeks and then non-meeting weeks. Non-meeting weeks is either prep for the upcoming weeks or just time to work on the business. In meeting weeks, your meetings are stacked Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but no Monday, Friday. That's correct. And then you don't take meetings in July or December. That's right. Just so for personal I, life, yeah, recognition, all that good stuff. Now I say no meetings in July, but what I had was four new clients that all came at the same time. So I, I did, you know, financial planning for those clients in that month. That's just how it shook out. But I, I would, if I didn't have that, I'm just not doing, you know, annual review kind of meetings. I, I'm keeping that month to do all the other things we have to sure. do for business. And, and when you do your meeting, see like your, your meeting cycles, this sort of Tuesday, every other Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm just curious, like, how much do you stack your meetings? How intense do you like to make those days when they're meeting days? That's another evolution. So I was doing, when I was doing surge, I was doing four meetings a day. Um, and I found that that, I didn't like that. So um, you are spent. And so I do two meetings a day. I do two client meetings in a given day. And I I just find that that works really well. Okay. So you effectively you know two, two per day across the three days, six mm-hmm. meetings per uh, per week in meeting weeks, and across the the client base that you've got and the a the a client and b client commitments, just like that that maths out for you over the over the span of the year. It does, and you know what that means is that you're basically having meetings all the time. Um, you're having meetings, you know, every week that's a meeting week, you're having meetings. It's, you know, right. they're booked, you're good to go. But I really like the way it's been spaced out because um, I just found that I need time to do all this prep and I want I wanted right. to take the time to do that. So as you reflect back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about the path of building your own advisory business as you, as you went out on your own? So... I would, I would say there's a couple things, you know, it was, I, I wasn't really sure what to expect when I launched this company. Um, you know, I like everything else that's evolved. I, at first I thought, um, I wanted to build the very biggest business possible. Um, and just, you know, everybody would come to wealth choice around the world and, you know, I'd be helping every woman executive. And as I got into it, I realized I actually just, I loved the planning piece. I didn't want to give it up and I didn't really have a need to be this behemoth. Like it, that wasn't my purpose. So, um, you know, I, when you look at the, the challenges, if you will, you know, the, there's been so many, it is the most stressful thing in the world to launch a business. Um, and to know that you actually, I had to be successful. It was not an option to fail. I, I needed this to be financially successful. If it had, if it hadn't, I would have to have taken a job somewhere. Right. I mean, like I, I, right. I needed this to work. 
So it, I, I think not knowing how to run a business and then having the time mm. to actually take care of your clients is the scary part, right? It's very, very hard to do everything. And I really felt in the beginning, I wanted to do everything. I, like I said, I, I was afraid of compliance. Like I, I was afraid of not doing something by the book. I do everything by the book. I just don't, I mean, we're in a serious industry. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I take that very seriously. So initially I, you know, I only delegated a little bit because I was afraid of, of messing those things up. And then realizing I was paying a premium for like next to nothing. Um, and then I felt like, man, I have to take all this on myself, but how am I going to do that? You know, which is why I partnered with somebody to, you know, put together these resources. Um, you know, I, I, I think having, having a solution around, you know, delegating all this, the stuff that's not my passion has allowed me to build the business, you know, the way it is. And, you know, it, I think you have to get out of your own head. I was really, really nervous building this. I was, I was probably like a total wreck for a couple of years um, because I really wanted it to work. And I, I, you know, when you have had somebody pay your wages forever, I, you know, I'd always been an employee and now it's on you. It's a very different deal. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so I just threw myself all in, you know, I, I felt like it was, there was, there's so much to do, but once I had it together where mm-hmm. I had delegated stuff and I felt like I had really good solutions there. Um, and, you know, even like I said, it's, it's such an evolution and, and having last year where we created workflows, like I can tell you exactly what my process is for a new client. I couldn't have done that a year ago with conviction. But, um, you know, just spending time on, on how do I make this better? How do I actually make the company more efficient? Um, you know, you, you changed that. We did surges for two years, three years. And I realized that that was totally not what we're going to do anymore. So, you know, you pivot mm. to things as they work better for you and you try different things out. And I think as a business owner, that's the deal, right? You're, you're trying different things. Um, I mean, I'll read anything. I'll try anything. And then you have to sort of fit it on and, and see if, is this going to work for you or not? Um, you know, I think those are some of the challenges. There's no one way to run a business like ours, right? right. Everybody I know who's doing what I do does it differently. Um, and I think that's okay, right? I mean, it, you serve different people, you serve them a different way, you know, you, you run your business differently. So um, I think all that's to say there, there's a lot to run these businesses, but I think if you get, if you get efficiencies in place and you delegate it away, it's really rewarding. So what, what, I guess I'm just curious, what changed that like now over the past year was the, okay, I'm getting this, this like process stuff in place and systematizing it more, but hadn't, hadn't cemented or you hadn't wanted to cement or you hadn't been willing to, to do that for the years leading up. Like, was there something that changed that was like last year was the process year? No. So there's it. So in 2020, I took coaching from a limitless. And it was the first time I realized that there were other companies and people were systematizing things and they were super intentional about every single part of the business. And so that is the first time where I was like, am I really true to my niche, right? Do I, do I send people away who are not the right people? Um, do I actually have a repeatable process? And I did a, uh, you know, do I like my fee structure? I did a, a review of every single part of the business, um, and it was, it's a little overwhelming. Like there's a lot to look at and, and some stuff I sacrificed. But so it was then in 2020 where I, I realized that people, other people running these businesses had ways to make this easier for you because otherwise I was just, you know, I'm all over the place. Um, Cause I didn't know. I mean, you know, there's no blueprint to how to do this. Yeah. 
Um, and then I have a friend who is, you know, is also a few years into her business who is really good at systematizing. And she was doing workflows on Asana. I mean, she, she was like, Bridget, this is how I'm solving these problems. Um, and that's when I said, okay, I, I want to do this, but I don't know how to do this and I need help to do this. So when I finally brought on the right assistant, she was able to create all those processes, those workflows for me. And I use Advison for that. But um, so it was a combination of things, Michael. It was like first learning that there's a better way to do these things. Um, and then actually having a friend who is, you know, another planner who's doing this in her mm -hmm. practice. Um, and she shared, hey, these are the different resources I'm using to help with these things. Um, so I think sharing among peers is incredibly helpful. Uh, and then we just started. And I'm struck that part at the end of the day was like, and then I got a person who likes <laughs> making these because I don't like making them. I, just, I feel resonance for that as someone who also like, I so respect and appreciate a well-designed, uh, uh, systematized process. I, I can't stand making them myself. So, like, I right? just, I, I can't, I can't do it. Like I put our company on a sauna and I don't know how to build anything in it. Uh -huh. No, I don't either. And so I paid for that and I'm like, if you figure that out, that, that's awesome. And we actually wound up migrating it all to Advison because we can build workflows in there too. But uh, no, I do not know how to use Asana. I just knew it was like a way for people to do this, yeah. but yeah, that's, and, um, that's kind of how it worked. The, and the assistant is from the operation support you get from VPG? From no, this is okay. my executive assistant who um, okay. is really good at that kind of stuff. So because I consider that like client stuff, right? So that's my workflows that are client facing. And, you know, she created those workflows. You know, we did it together, but essentially she created them and then I reviewed them. But no, VPG will do my custodial paperwork. They'll do anything on that operations side. But um, really mostly interfacing okay. with the custodian and the client. Okay. So they're, they're the, I don't want to have to call my custodian That's support. Exactly it. Whereas your, your executive assistant was the, let's systematize the client experience. That's side. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's been terrific with that. And she interfaces with my marketing team. So, um, because that's another thing that takes a lot of time and, you know, that's, that's the client experience. So she, she spearheads that. So what was the low point for you on this career journey as an advisor? Because you've been through a, a number of different channels and firm structures and setups now. What was the low point for you? I think, I think probably losing um, big clients is a very big low point. And, um, and what I learned from that, so in the, right in the, like halfway through 2020, and we're in the middle of the thick of COVID, um, and I had my largest client question our value. Um, it was, and I have, I have to be honest with myself. They were not an ideal client, right? So the, my ideal client is an executive woman, um, a woman attorney. And, and so this woman attorney came to me, I had known her for years and she finally asked me to work with her and she said, Hey, would you work with my husband too? Um, which I'll do. And, but he, um, he was challenging for me. And he was not a good fit for our practice. And I didn't care because it was a very big client and nothing was right about this. It was not the right client, but he was going to pay the bills. And I was stressed because it was the pandemic and I didn't know where the market was going to go. And I know for a lot of us, it was, you know, nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, and so this guy, I was all in on him and I was losing him. And I was in the middle of really good coaching with Limitless. And I was, t I, 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 I was panicking. And the guy was like, 
you know, I just, I, I'm going to move all the money out. And I, I, I couldn't understand why he wanted all his money in zoom. And then, you know, there's a lot of reasons it was not okay. But, yeah. um, <laughs> so, um, I did the number one thing I was told in coaching you should never do, which is I cut my fee. Cause I was truly panicked and I, you know, talking to my coach and she's like, Bridget, you do not cut your fee. You have a value. You don't do that. And so she was great. And I said, okay. And I did it anyway. And I said, look, I'm going to work for this guy for free for a quarter. And meanwhile, it's costing me a fortune because it's a large client. Um, and um, at the end of that quarter, you know, we had a conversation and he moved it all anyway. And so what I learned was um, uh, never second guess yourself. You know who your niche is. And um, but it was, you know, Michael, in a time when it was like a financial crisis, mm -hmm. I, I could not afford to have clients leaving me. And this is when you're like, I, what I make here in this company is, is how I'm paid, right? This, yep. if, this is it. Like every client is like gold to you. But at the same time, there are some clients that are not right. And the biggest lesson of that was um, as painful as it was at the time, because it was pretty awful, was um, A, diversify your client base, right? Because there should not be one client that's that big for anybody, I don't think. <clears throat> but, yep. you know, serve the right people. And that wasn't the right person. And I should never have taken that client in the first place. So anyway, I, I, I learned a lot from that. And I, I don't make that mistake anymore. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and like tell, tell you of 10 years ago? Oh, you know, um, I think there's so many lessons here. I mean, I, I wish I had launched the business sooner. So I'm seven years in this week. I wish I had had the guts to do this sooner, seriously, um, because I love it. I love the freedom to do what you want, to serve who you want, the way you want. Um, I really wish I had had the guts to do it earlier. Um, I really wish, too, that I had learned to delegate sooner um, because I think it stymied the growth. So even though I've had really good growth, um, it, I, I really felt that I, I held too much myself, right? I, it, you know, down to the trading, which was the last thing I gave a couple of years ago away. Um, I think delegate, like know where your passion is, spend your time there and hire people to do the other stuff because it will actually save you money if you do that. Um, and then you're happy, right? And then you're not working all day long in things that you don't necessarily like or are yeah. good at. Um, so, so if you... If you told you from seven to ten years ago, like know where your passion is and spend your time there, would you have mm -hmm. convinced? Would you have convinced yourself? I don't know. <laughs> or, were you, or were you still going to hold on to this until it hurt you for know, a while? I don't know. I mean, part of the way we all learn is because it gets painful. Mm -hmm. um, but I see the tremendous. I see the tremendous benefit of that. Um, you know, I resisted coaching. I've never had a mentor in my whole life, right? You know, I, I've always been in, in our industry. You know, I started on Wall Street in the 80s. I've never had a mentor. Um, and when I signed up for coaching, I was like, where have I, you know, where's this been, you know, for my whatever, 55 years? But only because it hurt enough to want to do it. Well, I know Ste yeah. Steph herself like say pain is the rapid absorption of learning. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which kind, of, kind of fits a lot of these scenarios. There's a like, yeah, I totally know now. Still not sure I would have done it differently in the first place because I had to do that to myself in order to learn the lesson. You know, I think that's one of the things that like being an entrepreneur, right? You, you this is your baby. Like this, you're so yeah. much of your identity is in your business. Um, yeah. It's a big deal. Like that's why I said I could never see selling this company. I, I love everything about this company. I love what we stand for. I like the work we do. I like my brand. Um, 
this is a part, an extension of who I am. Um, and I don't know, you know, you think you can do it all. You, you may be able to do it all. You just can't do it all well. Um, and you right. certainly can't have any quality of life. So any other advice you would give younger advisors who are you know, newer and coming in the profession today and trying to get off on a, on a good foot for the future? Well, I would say you can totally do it. Like it, you can do, if you want to have your own practice, you can do this. You just have to think through, you know, who's your niche. You need to stay true to the niche. That makes a huge difference. And you need to invest in yourself. You know, by that, I mean, get some really good coaching because there are things you don't know that you think you know, but you don't know. Um, delegating was a huge deal for me. Huge. Like I, I literally can't tell you how much it's changed my business to have the right people doing things that are, they're better at them and they get it done and it frees you up to do other stuff. I would, I would encourage anybody who has a passion for financial planning, who thinks they want to run their business because not everybody wants to do this. Um, I would say, if you want to do it, you can do this and you can do it very successfully. You just need to have a plan and think some of this stuff through. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success and just one of the things I've always observed is how the, the word success means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us as we go through different stages of life for ourselves. And so you've had this wonderfully successful career track for the business, you know, 77 million after seven years. And so the, the business is in a wonderful place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? That is a very good question. So I don't think for me, it's not, it's not just about money, right? It's not about how much I make. It's being able to do something I truly love on my terms. And that is really hard. Um, and so I'm really happy with where I am with the business. I don't really know where I want to take it. I just kind of want to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, I already feel very fulfilled with where I am, but I, I somehow have this feeling like I need to keep going but there's, you know, when you bring on new clients, it's crazy fulfilling. Uh, everybody's got a different story and different challenges. And I really like that. So I, I like to work with new, new situations and, and new people. And, and I can't do that without bringing in help. You know, I, that's, you know, hence the new person. But um, I think success is a combination of just, it's doing what you truly love on your terms, however you define that. And I'm still working on the definition. Well, I, I think, uh, Success is truly is doing whatever you truly love on your own terms is a is a pretty darn good definition you've got already. Hmm. I like it. Thanks. I like it. Well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate this. And it was great having a conversation with you, Michael. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.